All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We are in chapter 2. We're going to look at uh, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, the church at Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. The topic, the believers in Smyrna are told that they will soon be crushed like fragrant myrrh for their testimony of Jesus Christ. The title of our message, Scent of a Witness. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, it's glorious that we could be here today together with other believers in Christ and perhaps a few who are searching for you. They may not even know it, Lord, but uh, that empty place in their heart and life, that, that's where you belong. And we pray that you would draw them in today. Uh, we uh, trust your word to be the power of God unto salvation. And not that it teaches itself, Lord, but the Holy Spirit is here to apply it to our lives and to teach us. And you promised in this very book that you would be in our midst as well. And so with all that going for us, Lord, I pray that we would simply be attentive to your voice, that we would be those who hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches and to each of us individually. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Residents of Pauly's Island off the Carolina coast tell the legend of the gray man. In the early 1800s, a young man was going to visit his love to ask for her hand in marriage. Along the way, his horse stumbled and he was thrown. He landed in quicksand, which slowly pulled him under to his death. When she learned of his fate, the young woman was devastated. She took to taking long walks along the beach alone. One night while on her walk, she came upon a man dressed in a gray suit staring at the ocean. When the figure turned to her, she recognized her true love. He told her the island was not safe and that she needed to leave. Her family evacuated to the mainland. That very day, a hurricane swept over Pauly's. When they returned to the island, everything was in shambles. Everything that is but one thing, their family home alone survived. Residents say that the gray man has appeared several times over the years, right before a major storm. Those who heed the warning survive, as do their homes. As early warning systems go, the gray man is pretty lame. He doesn't always appear. Maybe he's too busy hanging around with the moth man, who also appears from time to time to warn of disasters. They're like a disaster team in the supernatural. The National Hurricane Center gives everyone 36 hours notice. Now I would go with them in terms of when to evacuate. Jesus issued a warning to the saints in the church at Smyrna. In verse 10, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. It would seem wise to get out of Dodge, but this was not an evacuation notice. Jesus advised them later to be faithful unto death, to in fact stay and endure. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, God released the fragrance of eternal life as Jesus was crushed for you. And number two, you release the fragrance of eternal life as you are crushed for Jesus. Let's take a look at Jesus' crushing in verse 8. You don't need to be a linguist to see the word myrrh in Smyrna. Myrrh is a gum resin taken from a tree that was an important ingredient in making fragrances in those days. The resin would be collected from the tree by making an incision in the outer bark. Then it would be allowed to harden. It released its fragrance when it was crushed. Myrrh is especially associated with the suffering of Jesus in the Bible. 
The Magi brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh as gifts for Jesus. Myrrh was significant in that it was often used as an embalming agent. The gift of myrrh indicated that Jesus was born to die. They brought it to him as a child, but it was anticipatory of his death. As he hung on the cross, Jesus was offered wine mingled with myrrh to drink. Myrrh in this form was an anesthetic. Jesus refused it. He refused to dull his suffering on the cross for you and I. At his burial, Jesus was anointed with myrrh according to the burial customs of the time. Then in Isaiah 53:10, we read, prophesying of Jesus, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. The apostle Paul was alluding to Jesus being crushed when he wrote in Ephesians 5, Christ loved us and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. The crushing of Jesus, his sufferings to obtain salvation for all who believe, that's the context in which the Lord will tell the saints in Smyrna to endure to the end. And so we pick it up in verse eight, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. The angel of the church at Smyrna is a reference to its pastor. He would be the most likely individual to read aloud the scroll and thereby present the message as it was carried from church to church. Angel is a word that simply means messenger, one who delivers a message. And, and so there's no reason to think that it was anyone other than the person who would normally deliver a message on a Sunday. Each of the seven letters opens with a description of Jesus from John's vision of the risen Lord in chapter one. And each time Jesus described himself to a church, his description was also the comfort or the correction to the dangers or difficulties that particular church was facing. Here, Jesus identifies himself as the first and the last. That is a title of Almighty God in the Old Testament, by the way. But notice what he couples together with this description, he who was dead and came to life. And so Jesus is the almighty God who was dead and came to life. When Jesus says he was dead, it means that he became dead. He came as God in human flesh and was crucified on the cross at Calvary, and he rose from the dead three days after his crucifixion. Now, this is meant to be encouraging to the saints at Smyrna. Some of them, they're going to read in a minute, are going to become dead. But like Jesus, they would rise from the dead. It was and is the perfect word, is it not, for someone facing death. The knowledge that they will uh, be with Jesus, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You have to remember a lot of these first century guys and gals, they didn't have the full revelation of God that we have. We read in the book of 1 Thessalonians, for example, that they were troubled about the order of events concerning the resurrection of the dead in Christ. They thought maybe if you died before Jesus came in the rapture, you would somehow not raise from the dead or they didn't know what was gonna happen. And so Paul corrected them and gave a great teaching on the coming of the Lord to rapture the church. And so the Lord is gonna tell them, hey, you're gonna become dead. There's martyrdom in your future, but uh, I was a martyr too, and I did it for you. And so it's a tremendous encouragement to the saints. Death stinks, literally. One of my favorite lines in the Bible was uttered by Martha. Jesus ordered them to take away the stone, uh, stone rather, from the tomb of her recently deceased brother Lazarus. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to Jesus, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. 
In my support of law enforcement as chaplain, I've occasionally smelled the stench of death. Uh, you uh, might see sometimes the cops lighting up cigars in a scene like that to keep from being overwhelmed by the stench of rotting flesh. Jesus changed all that for believers. The crushing of Jesus released the sweetest spiritual fragrance the world has ever known or will ever know. It is the fragrance of eternal life. And so now when we die, there's no stench. There's only the fragrance of eternal life as we're ushered into eternity. You release the fragrance of eternal life as you are crushed for Jesus. That's the subject of the remaining verses. Let me ask you a question. Would you knowingly go to an unlicensed doctor? Have you ever, maybe you do this, and maybe I'm, uh, it's my detriment, but I've never really, before I went to a doctor, said, hey, I want to see your credentials. I want to see your licensing with the state, and I want to see your, uh, you know, your degrees. Oh, I see here you went to the University of the Internet. Oh, that's fine, yeah. <laughs> so I'll compare my notes with your notes, and we'll come up with a treatment. Uh, acupuncture in my eyeball, sure, that sounds great, you know. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, you really, I mean, you know, hey, hey, doc, you know, I've got this tumor that's 35 pounds coming out my head. Uh, maybe I should find out if you're really a doctor or if you really have a license or if you're in good standing uh, and stuff. But we don't normally do that. Under Domitian, emperor worship was made compulsory. Each year, every citizen had to burn incense on Caesar's altar while saying Caesar is Lord. They would then be issued a certificate attesting to their loyalty to Rome. Think of that certificate the way we do licenses. Christians could not, in good conscience, burn incense and declare that Domitian was God. And so this was a, this was a problem, obviously, for the Christian. And so in verse 9, Jesus says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is a great summary of what was going on in the city of Smyrna. Now, first of all, the majority of Bible scholars say the word works is not in the best surviving Bible manuscripts that have come to us, so we're going to ignore that. The three difficulties the Smyrnian believers faced were tribulation, poverty, and blasphemy. Why poverty? Well, let's say you're a believer in Smyrna. You can't offer incense to Caesar. You won't do it. But you don't want to disobey the government, and you can't work without a license. And so your decision to not burn incense means that you can't work. Uh, maybe you have a trade as a stonemason or a carpenter or an apothecary, whatever it might be, but without a license, you're not able to work. And you have a conscience that says, I want to obey the government. Why would you have tribulation? Well, maybe you take the position that you are going to remain working without a license. When the, uh, when the authorities find out, you're gonna be in trouble, right? Uh, eventually they find out that you're working without a license or drive, you know, my, again, when I'm uh, riding along with law enforcement, it's scary how many people are driving without a license. It's absolutely frightening. Uh, you know, they will, they'll pull somebody over for a violation of some, licenses expired, no registration, no insurance, have a nice day, right? Uh, it, it's rough out there. And so people would, some of the Christians, I can, you know, we would be split that way, right? COVID-19 has split Christians in a lot of ways. It's like, oh, we have to obey the government and, you know, do these things. And others say, yeah, not so much. I'm over on this side. 
uh, which, by the way, is my right side. Anyway, uh, but uh, you know how it works. And so this was a real problem. How were, uh, how were the authorities finding out? Jews, who, by the way, were exempted from emperor worship, would rat you out on account of their hatred for Jesus and his followers. They blasphemed you to the authorities. Hey, uh, this guy, Gene, he's running a cafe without a license. And so they would uh, begin persecuting you. Those who say they are Jews and are not is a description that has garnered lots of speculation from commentators. End of the day, Jesus was referring to the physical descendants of Abraham who faithfully attended the synagogue. He was talking about Jews. They were not Jews to Jesus because of their unbelief. Once when he was on the earth in a tense confrontation with Jesus, the Jews accused him of being Mary's illegitimate son. Jesus replied, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. And so this is the type of Jew that we're dealing with in Smyrna, Jewish by ethnicity, but not serving God. Regardless, their claim to be descended from Abraham, Satan had taken over their synagogue and they were doing his bidding in blaspheming all those who were in Christ. They thought they were doing the right thing. Uh, they hated, you know, uh, the Christians and they thought they were doing the right thing. But of course, like the Apostle Paul found out on the road to Damascus, they were actually persecuting Jesus by persecuting Christians. Jesus said of the mistreated believers, you are rich. They were rich in the spiritual currencies of heaven. You are wealthy beyond your wildest imagination, just not now in terms of wealth on earth. But you have all spiritual blessings in uh, heavenly places at your disposal. You have the Holy Spirit within you. Uh, it's called a treasure in an earthen vessel. And sometimes we just need to be reminded of all the great things that the Lord has provided for us already. Nowhere was life more dangerous for a Christian. If I'm in Smyrna, I'm looking to evacuate before things get any worse. Seems like I'd be safer in any of the other six cities that are within about 40 miles of walking distance of each other. I have to think some of the believers had already fled ahead of persecution. Probably they went to Arkansas. That's the new Eden, by the way, for Californians who are relocating. Uh, I, I've talked to you about this before, but for a while, the, I don't know if this is in order, but you know, we got to get to Washington or Idaho or Oregon, Texas. Now it's Arkansas. I know some families that have moved there and it's, it's like, you know, the, every sentence is uh, peppered with it's God's country and you know, this kind of thing. And it's Bill Clinton country. I know that. But anyway, <laughs> Revelation 2.10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. As of the writing of the revelation, no one had been imprisoned or martyred, not yet. Notice these key phrases, things which you are about to suffer. The devil, uh, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You will have tribulation. Read verse 10 carefully and you realize that Jesus was telling them to stay put, to submit to imprisonment, and to submit to death as his martyrs. Jesus understood evacuation. 
When just a child, Joseph and Mary were told to flee to Egypt with him to avoid his being murdered by King Herod. He, they evacuated uh, lickety-split and they got down to Egypt where Jesus was safe. But Jesus also knew blasphemy, false imprisoning, and death for testimony. Now, Jesus got very specific. He told them they would have tribulation 10 days. There are all kinds of interesting theories about what 10 days mean, uh, such as it means a long but definite period of time, or it refers to 10 successive future periods of persecution through the centuries. It most likely means 10 days, 10 24-hour days. Limited periods of persecution are very common in biblical history. And if we let the Bible comment on the Bible, you'll see what I mean. Genesis 7, verse 4. I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and how many nights? 40 nights. And I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. Numbers 14:33. Your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years. Jeremiah 29, 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. How long is the future great tribulation going to last? Seven years. No more, no less. Then there was that time in Persia. Wicked Haman lobbied the king to pass a law saying it was legal to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. That potential one day of infamy was the time Queen Esther stepped up to save the Jews in Persia from annihilation. Haman's plot backfired big time. And so there's no reason to take the 10 days as anything other than literal 10 days because the Bible is full. There are other examples too. It's full of time judgments like that. And so the Lord was literally saying 10 days of really severe, uh, severe persecution are coming upon this church. Jesus said that you may be tested. Listen to this quote. The same word refers to the demonic attacks destined to befall unbelievers on earth during the future hour of trial. But here, its sense is that of testing by persecution. It does not mean a trial for the purpose of proving them, but a trial by way of enticing them to fall away. The prominent thing is the declared role of Satan in soliciting Christians to sin by renouncing their faith. In other words, this wasn't a trial from God. This is an assault by the devil. We trip all over ourselves theologically trying to understand or explain why God permits certain things. And if you think about it, it's really not that unusual. Maybe this illustration will help. All illustrations fall short, but this helps me. Let's say it's a time of war. To achieve the greater good, you and your fellow soldiers are commanded to hold your position at all costs. Your valor will save thousands of lives, but it will most likely cost yours and your men. So that's the strategy. You guys hold your position so that others might evacuate and be safe. You're certainly going to die. We see that as heroic. We honor those men with medals. We are in a war. It's a cosmic spiritual war, and there will be casualties. 
Why do we think an earthly military war requires the ultimate sacrifice, but that the cosmic struggle for souls should not even uh, in, entertain suffering? We are soldiers. We are not privy to understand all of the Lord's strategies in the war. The Smyrnian believers were told to stay put and endure the test even unto death. Uh, I don't know if you figured it out from reading the Bible on your own, God has weird strategies. <laughs> Almost everything he does is weird. Uh, you know, it, uh, walk around Jericho. Don't say a word. And then the seventh day, blow your horns. All right. Uh, you've got too many men, Gideon. Let's pare this down to almost nothing. So the odds are incredibly against you. Okay. Let's be born in a manger. I mean, these are insane strategies from the point of view of the world. Uh, and, and you see, as you read uh, these Bible stories, you think, wow, that's fantastic. And then God says, here's what I want you to do in Smyrna. I want you to be martyred because that is gonna amplify your testimony in a way that nothing else can right now. And it's going to, what happens here is going to maybe affect something over here. But you know what? The Lord doesn't tell us why. He just tells us what to do. And like good, so now in the military, your commander can be wrong, right? Uh, they can make mistakes, but not in God's army. And so the Lord said, here's what's gonna happen. 10 days of intense persecution are coming. Some of you are gonna be imprisoned. Some of you are gonna become dead. That's great because I'm going to, that, that's your place in this warfare right now. And there's going to be uh, a, a victory as a result of it. Not everyone in the church would die as a martyr, but each one should be willing to. Literally, Jesus said to them, stop being afraid. Johnny Fontaine was denied the lead role in a movie. Talking about it to his godfather, he began to weep, crying in his hands. Don Corleone rose to his feet, grabbed him by the hands and shouted, act like a man. <laughs> then he slapped him saying, what's the matter with you? He went on to mock his crying. I love that scene. <laughs> Called him a crybaby. I don't recommend the godfather's methods. Not there, or certainly not afterward with the horse's head. Uh, but, but his message was right on. We need to quit whining sometimes and act like believers. I don't relish it. I, I, in fact, I hate it. But sometimes just because of the position I'm in, you know, I am forced to tell people that their situation is probably going to get worse or that at least it could get worse. Uh, and because it can you know, I, I, nothing bothers me like false hope. I remember, I, I think I have time to tell this. Uh, when I was down around the time, when my dad died down in Redlands and he was in the hospital and it's a longer story than this, but they sent a chaplain around and my family like all made a cross like this and say, you want to talk to him? Why the chaplain would need to talk to me? And I thought well, this would be, you know, interesting to see because I'm a chaplain. I'll see how the chaplain handles herself. And she's great, wonderful, just, you know, we prayed and all that. But then all of a sudden she had to say, you know, Gene, it encourages me that your dad is in a better place now. And I don't know that that's true. I think I've shared with you before, my dad never received the Lord. I shared with him a couple of times pretty heavy before he died. And he actually told me he didn't want to receive the Lord. Now, I trust the Lord uh, to be faithful and to be fair and to, you know, my dad was in a coma for a while. 
I've spoken to people who've come out of comas and they, they say, yeah, I, I remember you speaking to me. And so I'm not saying my dad is in hell, but you can't tell me that he's in a better place. That, that's just not true. And, and it ruined the whole ministry. And so sometimes as Christians, we need to be careful and, and step back and say, oh, I, I don't want to say this to you, but you, know, you could get sicker or this situation could deteriorate. There's nothing, you know, so let's pray and let's get into it and let's figure out what the Lord is going to do. Uh, and, and so, um, and sometimes the, the message is, hey, you need to act like a believer in this situation. So let's figure out how would a believer act? How is a believer supposed to act? Because if you're filled with the spirit, you can act that way. You can, you can come under that teaching. John had appointed Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp was burned at the stake and pierced with a spear for refusing to burn incense. Church history has it that on the day of his martyrdom, Polycarp said, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked." Fox's Book of Martyrs records the smell of his burning, quote, not as burning flesh, but as gold and silver refining in the furnace. We received also in our nostrils such a fragrance as proceeds from precious perfume. Some of the sources I searched say it is likely Polycarp was in the meeting when Revelation was read. Do the math. Polycarp was born in 69 AD. He died in 155 AD at the age of 86. The Revelation was written somewhere around 95 AD. Polycarp would have been in his late 20s or early 30s at the time of its circulation. The Apostle John, who wrote the Revelation, died around 100 AD. If, as church historians hold, John appointed Polycarp bishop in Smyrna, then he was likely there to hear the letter. In fact, there's an outside possibility that he was the messenger who read the letter. Uh, so very interesting. The various pagan temples scattered around Smyrna were called the Crown of Smyrna. It was similar to the volcanoes surrounding our region that we call the Ring of Fire, right? Yosemite, or not Yosemite, uh, Yellowstone, which is getting ready to blow any minute and will just destroy the entire western United States. Let's go there. Uh, but in a play on words, Jesus was promising them the Crown of Life. This is the type of crown given to those who were victorious in athletic competitions. It's more like what we would call a garland or a wreath. So instead of giving gold medals, they would give you a, a garland. And so if you were one of these, you know, guys that had multiple wins, you would have garlands stacked up on your head. There are various other crowns available to us. You can look them up at your leisure. Yes, we will toss our crowns at Jesus' feet in heaven, but that only makes me want them all the more. Their use as an object to honor the Lord increases rather than decreases their value. When you graduate from high school or college or an academy or when we used to do things like that in a civilized society, uh, you would do what at the end with your cap? You toss it up in the air in celebration and jubilee. You're going to want a crown or two in heaven. You don't want to be the only guy with his hands behind his back. So, hey, you got an extra crown I could borrow? Hey, forget it, buddy. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. He who has an ear makes everything in these letters applicable to any Christian, anywhere, anytime. To the churches makes everything in each letter applicable to any church, anywhere, anytime. The second death is explained later in Revelation. 
in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 20. The second death is the judgment of all non-believers throughout all of time. Having rejected eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, they will be cast alive into the lake of fire, what we call hell, to suffer conscious torment for eternity. Christians have no fear of death, especially of the second death. Death for the believer is a departure for home. We will never stand before the terror of the great white throne. Instead, we stand before the Lord at a reward seat. Christians die once, or maybe not at all. Non-believers die twice. We talked previously at some length about what it means to be an overcomer. It doesn't only apply to super-Christians. It's synonymous with being saved. Uh, John says in one of his epistles, if you're born of God and believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are an overcomer. Satan has his strategies. No one is better at counter-strategy than the Almighty God. Maybe some of God's strategies are so weird because he has to outwit Satan. Not that there is any battle there. It's like, you know, doing uh, battle with an unarmed man when it comes to God. Remember the far side commercial where God was on uh, Jeopardy? Or not commercial, cartoon. Remember that? Anybody remember that? They showed him he had like 80 billion points or dollars and everybody else was at negative, you know, whatever, because he knew the answer to everything. But the devil is super smart, right? I mean, he's, he's no slouch when it comes to strategy and power, and he's got all of his minions and all. And he has his strategies, and they're, they're pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, get you to deny God, uh, cause you to sin, tempt you, all these different things. And God comes at him with these strange rebuttals that he could never expect. I mean, you and I look at that and we say, the devil was crazy to allow Jesus to be crucified, Right? Because on the cross, he did what? He destroyed the power of the devil forever. And, and he, he did away with sin and all of that. And so you would think if the devil was smart, he'd say, hey, we need to keep this guy alive. We, we, there's no way we can let him sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. But the devil couldn't understand a suffering savior, a suffering Messiah, uh, that God would come in human flesh to die for the sins of the world. And so this is, this is the kind of strategy God employs. My strategy in Smyrna would be to have all the Christians evacuate. Uh, if I'm, you know, if, if I'm the pastor and this letter comes that says, oh, 10 days of really intense tribulation, let's go on vacation. Uh, let's get out of town. Let's, anybody have relatives in Ephesus or Thyatira? That's where we're headed. At that moment in history, the Lord determined his troop of saints could do the best witnessing by dying as martyrs. We need reminding that while God permits, uh, well, what God permits may make no sense to us, it is wisdom in the warfare. No Bible study about the believer's spiritual fragrance could be complete without referencing 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 16, where the Apostle Paul wrote, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To, those, uh, to one, rather, we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. Who is sufficient for these things? I'd say the chances are pretty good. None of us will die as martyrs. But according to the Apostle Paul here, we are nonetheless to think of ourselves as diffusers of the fragrance of eternal life in our daily witness. So you don't have to die 
uh, in a sense, you don't even have to be crushed, but you still are to diffuse this fragrance, this beautiful aroma that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And so let's go out into the stench of the world with the scent of a witness. Amen?